And now, on today's program... Let's see where it takes us today. Roger that. And welcome aboard. Capturing this millisecond. It's a fraction of a second. It's the only thing interesting. Welcome to the Fuji Love Podcast. This is the monthly episode where we discuss all things Fuji and take your questions. If you like to submit a question, just drop us an email at jens at fujilove.com. That's J-E-N-S at fujilove.com. As always, for these episodes, I'm joined by the expert, aka the Fuji guy himself, Billy Luong. But hang in there, we also have a surprise guest for you, which you will discover a bit later on in this podcast. First things first, welcome Bailey back to the podcast. How are you today? I'm very well, thank you. And uh, again, Jens, uh, thank you for having me uh, on board with this uh, podcast. Such a pleasure to have you on the team, Billy. And as time is short and we have a full program today, let's jump right in with the first question. The first question comes from Ken, a very long-time Fujifilm user who has owned a variety of Fuji digital cameras going all the way back to the S2. He is dismayed that for some reason Fuji has eliminated the lock button feature that was activated by pressing and holding the OK button. He's a street shooter and walks around a lot with his camera over his shoulder and often finds his setting completely scrambled without knowing it. He writes that he would love to have this feature back on his camera, but as we are not in a position to change this on the camera manufacturer side, let's talk about what kind of workarounds we can offer to make it easier. Okay, uh, that's a very good question. And uh, I think he mentioned that he owned the uh, Fujifilm X-T1 and he moved on to the X-T2. So uh, thank you for your support on that. Uh, and yes, uh, you were able to lock the uh, directional pads uh, by holding down the menu OK button for a few seconds. And of course, a lock icon would, would appear. Um, there was also many occasions uh, from our support side of things where we got a lot of customers calling in and saying that, you know, the cameras were not functioning properly, properly and, uh, you know, uh, that lock feature sometimes was sort of a pain because, you know, it wasn't a physical issue with the camera, but people inadvertently put those buttons into that uh, lock mode and didn't realize that. Um, so the X-T3, you're right, does not have uh, that lock functionality. Uh, and again, you're correct that it is in the menu. So if you go into the menu of the camera, there is the ability to, uh, of course, uh, lock all functions, including the dials. Of course, you can also select uh, within the menu which items you wanted to lock. And I think that is a great feature to have because, you know, if you're running a small studio uh, and potentially maybe a portrait studio where you're just hiring uh, teenagers that don't know much about photography, but you have your camera completely set up the way you want it to be in terms of aperture and shutter speeds. Uh, that feature is great to kind of lock out so that uh, that person taking photos is not going to inadvertently change settings by mistake and, and of course, ruin the picture. So uh, the lock feature still is available, but it's not available on the dial itself. Um, personally, I like that feature as well. And uh, it's something maybe I can feed back to the uh, development team. But, you know, even something better is potentially putting that lock function uh, within a function button itself so that uh, you can quickly, um, you know, turn it on and off just by pressing a function button. So it'll be something that I'll, I'll definitely feed back to um, 
the development team in, in Japan. As a company, we're always looking at uh, um, you know any feedback and and constructive or, or positive and and you know if there's things that could potentially be done you know based on timing and resources uh you know that's definitely something that uh, at least i could push because i i do like that feature so i appreciate the uh, the question there so ken you got uh, billy on your side and your question is going to japan let's move on to the next question Eve is wondering why the xt100 does have electronic image stabilization and why the XT3 does not have both electronic image stabilization and the OIS stabilization? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and in fact, not just the XT100, but also the XF10 uh, also had um, electronic stabilization um, on the camera, which you know helped if, uh, of course, there isn't any in-body or IBIS. Um, of course, I'm always, you know, pushing to have IBIS in cameras. I mean, I, I do appreciate that feature as, you know, we discussed in the last um, podcast about, you know, having IBIS. And, you know, currently right now that system is is uh, a little bit too big to fit in the uh, current body size of uh, our current smaller X-series cameras like the X-T3 and the, uh, the X-T30. Um, I actually brought up this fact during the development phase of the XT30, uh, uh, recommending if you know they, uh, the product planners could incorporate um, electronic stabilization. Um, um, they got that feedback, and I, I think maybe based on resource and timing, um, you know, it wasn't something that they could actually uh, implement. Um, you know, so I hope one day that uh, they consider that that's something that i always i always uh push uh but hopefully even better than that is to actually truly have a mechanical stabilization system like ibis uh and maybe that would you know come come true down the road so i i hope um through you know our r&d department that uh, they can manage to uh to uh, miniaturize that system a little bit further so that it can fit on existing uh, body size um, but yeah, that's a great feature, and I, you know, I, I don't mind it being another item that I, you know, I, I would like to push. As a second part of the question, is that something that we can consider for a possible firmware update in the future for the XT3? The cameras that use the uh, Bayer sensor, they have a, a actually a slightly different processor, uh, and programming is different, so it's not as simple as you know cut and paste in terms of you know having you know certain features that are found on say the Bayer censored cameras like the XT100 and XF10 they generally don't auto equate over into the uh, the X you know uh, processor and and X trans system itself so there might be some difficulties in that trans translation but again I'm not the um, you know design engineers and I'm and like you I'm always looking for more and, and better ways of doing things and Again, it's things like these that I, I do push in meetings uh, and, you know, hopefully one day that that happens or, like I said, if better, having true IBIS would be the better solution. Moving on, here's a question from Ian who wrote from Thailand. He's asking us if we see the EVF as truly representative of the image or as a good tool in managing framing and exposure. He's not questioning the quality of the Fujifilm EVF, but rather how it fits into our workflow. I'll, I'll let you go first on that, Billy. Yeah, I think uh, he has it correct in the sense that, you know, um, 
the EVF is really just a, a tool so that you can, um, you know, accurately frame that picture. Um, with mirrorless cameras, one of the, the key benefits, of course, is that you do see exposure uh, right away, depending on the settings that you've set it up with, including white balance, uh, which is a great thing. I think, you know, you can't completely rely on the EVF, and that's why you have tools like um, uh, histograms and even color histograms to, uh, you know, help you in terms of uh, identifying, you know, exposure within the scene. I think a combination of, of having a good, fast refresh rate with accurate colors is great, but also using some of the tools that are available in the X-Series cameras will, will de definitely greatly help you with, uh, you know, getting the proper exposure. You know, on top of that, um, you know, within the camera settings, uh, there are adjustments to the EVF uh, display. So uh, you can go in and you can kind of tweak some of the color output to it um, uh, and uh, kind of, you know, see how that works better with you. If you find that colors are, are too vivid, you know, maybe you can tone that down within the, uh, the camera setup menu for the, uh, the EVF display. Now, I'm, I'm a very non-technical person. That's one of the reasons why Billy is here to give you uh, like competent answers on your questions. But I'm a photographer on my side, and I can tell you that, I mean, we came a long way with the, the EVF on, on the Fujifilm cameras. I more use the screen in general. But uh, given that I get a JPEG and a RAW file, I feel I can totally rely on both the screen and the EVF. And if really something goes not the way I want it to go, I can still pull up that RAW file and it's close enough to, to what I wanted to kind of get that, uh, that proper image again that I wanted in the beginning. So from my side, Ian, I have total confidence in, in the EVF. So I use it when the light is bright, when I need to use it. Otherwise, I use the screen, but never had any issues with accuracy. Yeah, and, and I think, you know, that stays true uh, for for everything that has a screen, whether it be your computer or your laptop or, uh, you know, your your TV. I mean, depending on the lighting in the area that's reflecting, you know, things are perceived differently. And that's why uh, it holds especially true for when you do color grading, you know, on a computer and you're working in a, in a different color space. Um, you know, sometimes you make these edits and you're basing it on maybe your poor your poor LCD display that you have that doesn't support those colors. And, and so, you know, I always say that, you know, with anything electronic that you use it sort of as a guide and that you have tools uh, uh, as like the histogram and, and to kind of help you with uh, getting the right exposure. And, and, you know, shooting raw is always going to be great because it gives you that, that flexibility uh, at the end of the day. I'm a fan of uh, Fujifilm JPEG files, but you're right. You can always, at the end of the day, rely on the RAW file and bring that back. Nico asks us, would Fujifilm ever consider making small, fast, large aperture manual focus only prime lenses for the X-Series? He compares the approach to the Leica primes and is wondering if Fujifilm maybe delves into the same kind of area of prime lenses. Uh, again, that's another great question, and and in fact, the first two questions is funny. Is is this last question here uh, reflects some of my own personal uh, wants when it comes to uh, to lenses, and to have you know manual lenses is great because they're small and they're compact. In fact, this is one of the things I have actually brought up, uh, you know, during a meeting, you know, where we had 
you know, the Japan marketing team as well as the development team is to see these manual lenses uh, because they're kind of cool to have. Now, of course, um, you know, if you look at, you know, all the online retailers right now, I'm sure you can find yourself, you know, a good set of uh, manual lenses that are already available. And I think, you know, uh, when Fujifilm creates lenses, I, I, they don't want to uh, sacrifice image quality. Uh, we talked about lens design before, and I, and I think, you know, for most part, uh, image quality is kind of key. So these manual lenses generally have really bad flaring, uh, really bad um, um, color fringing. Um, I've actually purchased, uh, you know, a couple of these manual lenses myself to play with. Uh, you know, one of them was a Seven Artisan branded lens, which is really cool, really compact. And, uh, you know, they do what they do in terms of, you know, it works. They're not the sharpest and they have quite a lot of, uh, you know, er a lot of, um, you know, um, errors in the image in, in the sense that there's a lot of flaring, a lot of uh, what I mentioned before, like color fringing. Uh, but I kind of like that too, because it adds sort of this uh, uniqueness to, uh, to the image itself. Uh, so in saying that, I've, I've actually brought this up, and uh, I think at the moment, you know, um, there really isn't anything in the works uh, when it comes to making a manual lens, you know, aside from, you know, our MKX video lenses, which are manual lenses, right? But, of course, we're talking about more compact pieces, and I think, you know, if you're looking for lenses right now, I think the best option is to uh, look at some third-party uh, lens manufacturers that... Uh, that do already offer uh, X-mount lenses uh, that are nice and compact. So I'm personally a huge fan of, of prime lenses. I don't really need them to, to manually focus, but um, yeah, prime lenses always my first choice. That sums up the Q&A. Now, if you want to submit a question again, send an email to jens at fujilove.com. That's J-E-N-S at fujilove.com. Now, Billy, let's introduce our special guest. If you remember, in one of the last episodes, we've been talking about uh, quote-unquote issues that Fujifilm users can have in Adobe Lightroom. Here to talk with us about this is Sherrod. Sherrod is a principal product manager at Adobe. Thank you so much, Sherrod, for taking the time out to join us and welcome to the Fujilove podcast. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Hey, uh, Sherrod, thanks for joining this conversation. And I do appreciate getting you know direct answers from uh, Adobe. We do indeed highly appreciate you uh, joining us in the conversation here, Sherrod. Let me start with the following. You have recently introduced an update to Adobe products, which is relevant uh, not only, but in this case specifically for Fujifilm users. Sure, yeah. So we introduced an update to all of our photography software, so Camera Raw, Lightroom Classic, Lightroom CC, um, a few weeks ago, so in uh, mid-February. Um, and there's a big new feature that I think your listeners are going to love. It's called Enhanced Details. Um, it's a it's a new demosaicing algorithm that we've built. Uh, it uses machine learning and AI we trained it on over a billion images that have uh, problems that our standard demosaicing struggled with, which I think a lot of your listeners have probably uh, complained about over the years. Fujifilm customers are obviously very appreciative of Adobe and stepping in and and always trying to uh, you know offer the best image quality possible. I think uh, there's been some 
rumbling in the past about you know Fuji Films uh, raw file uh, and uh, with Adobe Lightroom and creating I guess uh, quote unquote these worm effects. I I see that uh, the update some people are quite happy uh, with it and that it has uh, definitely improved uh, on on correcting some of that uh, that worm effect that people see you know when they are looking at 300%. And but I do notice that it's it's creating a DNG file. Maybe if you can talk about that. So when you use this feature, Enhanced Details, we are creating a new file in the DNG file format. Um, the reasoning behind this is uh, Fuji's proprietary raw file, the RAF. Uh, it doesn't have an openly documented specification that Adobe can use to, to add the additional information that Enhanced Details creates. Um, and so, the other option that we had was that we could create something like a TIFF, um, but the problem there is that you know your white balance and all that mosaic, you know, data is kind of baked in, and that's obviously negating the benefit of why you would use a raw file. Um, and so the DNG file specification um, has has a placeholder, has places where Adobe can put information for enhanced details. Uh, which is why we're using, you know, linear DNG for uh, any photo that you've used enhanced details with. I guess uh, DNG is a little bit more flexible for you in, in storing that additional information. You're absolutely correct, right? In the sense that, you know, when you're working with raw files, you don't want anything baked in. You want to be able to uh, to manipulate that so that you still end up, you know, down the road with the best possible file. That's right. And um, you know, if you're if you're a customer that's buying the best gear, uh, the best lenses, you know, you don't want to be limited based on your processing or based on information that's already baked in that you can't change. And so uh, it's really important, especially if you're shooting with a raw file, um, that you get the best quality and enhanced details is kind of one of those new tools that you have in your arsenal uh, that, you know, if you see a photo that potentially has this worm problem and you've tried to change the sharpening and that hasn't fixed it, uh, try enhanced details, give it a shot. Um, it does a great job in solving that problem. And, uh, you know, and then you can actually print the file really large and it looks great uh, on the wall. And then this is a, a free update, right? For customers that are using the Adobe software. Correct. Yeah. So if you're a Creative Cloud member, um, all you have to do is just go to the desktop Creative Cloud application and just hit the update button. And, you know, for Canberra Raw, Lightroom Classic and Lightroom will all just be update, updated for you. And I think maybe the the audience would be interested, just like myself, in the sense that, you know, Fujifilm has this, you know, great set of film simulations uh, where you can shoot in, in different film modes like Classic Chrome and Velvia and, and Astia. Uh, and of course, Adobe Lightroom has always somewhat supported the film simulation by 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 having that. And I, I guess maybe some of the questions surrounding film simulation is is you know I guess how accurate of of that is that versus you know using Lightroom versus you know uh, shooting it directly on 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 the Fujifilm cameras itself or converting the raw files within the the Fujifilm cameras itself. Yeah, I mean that, that's a that's a great question. So we do a lot of testing, uh, both programmatically, like you know, just actually looking at uh, raw bits, 
um, and also just end user testing to see, you know, how accurate our are our profiles versus the ones that Fuji includes in camera. And in this case, I mean, we haven't seen perceptible differences between what Fuji's doing versus what we do. Um, in fact, you know, we actually work with Fuji uh, to confirm that, you know, our understanding of Velvia is the same as Fuji's or Astia. Um, and that's, you know, by design so that when you use the profile on Satellite Room, um, you're very confident that it's going to look exactly the way you want it to, the way they expect it to look. Um, and, you know, as someone that takes a lot of photos uh, with my X100, you know, I, I love the fact that I have all of these profiles right there and I don't have to make that decision in camera. When I look at the picture on my computer, um, I can make these choices and change the profile and it looks exactly the way that I would expect it to look in camera. Yeah, thanks for that. And I, I think, uh, you know, I think the viewers appreciate that, you know, whether they're editing the raw files on the Fujifilm software or in the camera or the editing raw files using Adobe Lightroom, uh, that they're getting that same look. So the question I have is, um, we, we just launched the Fujifilm X-T30 camera. Is that camera's raw file supported yet with Adobe Lightroom? Yep, it was supported in our uh, in our February release, yes. Okay, so that's great. That means that people who purchased a camera and go home right now, there is no update because it's already supported within your... Um, that's correct. Yep. Most yep. recent update. Yep, absolutely. That's great news. That's indeed great news. Now, Sherrod, I know this might be a tricky question for you, but still, is there anything on the horizon in the world of Adobe that we can look forward to and that you can share with us? Yeah, there's always exciting things coming up. Uh, I can't uh, obviously go into too many details on you know things that we haven't released yet, uh, but you know one of the big areas uh, of emph of emphasis is around computational photography. Um, we have uh, we have an AI platform that we call Adobe Sensei, and um, we're putting a lot of effort and research behind how we can use kind of these cutting edge. Uh, machine learning, AI tech techniques to either improve uh, photography, your photos, or the way that you actually consume and enjoy your photos. So um, it's it's still really early days, but you know we're really excited because in the same way that enhanced details is kind of pulling more information from the same raw file uh, than we were before and get you get better results, um, we're kind of looking to do this in other ways um, and, you know, it's really exciting because it's kind of on the cutting edge. Thanks so much for joining us, Gerard. Is there anything you want to share with the Fujilove community? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, thanks for having me on. It was, uh, it was my pleasure and I had a great time and, uh, I'm really excited to hear kind of your thoughts or your community's feedback on things like enhanced details and just other things that Adobe can do to, uh, to work better with with Fuji, uh, Fuji is really important to Adobe, and um, you know it's nice to see that. Uh, nice to hear the love, and if you guys have other thoughts and concerns or suggestions, we're always open. So don't hesitate and send your feedback to Adobe. Sherrod, thank you and Adobe so much for spending time with us. Thanks so much. Back to the program. 
let's move on to our second category, which is the camera corner. We're going to talk about the GFX 50S versus the GFX 50R. And again, me as a non-technical person, I am coming from the corner to say the thing that separates those two is basically the physical appearance. What do you think, Billy? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, both of these cameras have the same sensor and the same processor. Uh, the reason I'm, I'm talking about these two cameras is because uh, most recently I'm getting a lot of questions when, when people are looking at and are interested in this system and saying, you know, what camera is better for me, right? What is... You know, what makes the S different than the R? And, you know, I think uh, as a simple answer, you got it kind of correct in the sense it's about the size, right? Obviously, the 50R is a much more compact camera in, the, in, in a sense of medium format uh, and compared definitely to the, uh, the 50S. It is uh, smaller, slimmer, uh, more styled into sort of a, a rangefinder-ish design with the EVF kind of offset uh, on the back of the, of the camera. But I think, um, you know, I've been doing these GFX demos uh, in Canada and, uh, you know, a lot, of, a lot of people have been asking to try out and, and look at the uh, GFX 50R. And a lot of times they, they end up picking it up and, and then, you know, I obviously have the S with me as well. And there's a few things that changes some of the people's mind. I think, uh, you know, if you're looking at the S because it is a, a little bit more expensive than the R, um, it does offer a few things that the R doesn't offer. It actually has sort of a better handling, meaning that the grip is much more comfortable if you're planning to hold it long term. I know people commented on the uh, 50R um, not fitting as great. There's not that front rounded grip so that you can have a nice handling on it. And, uh, you know, I think if you're a photographer that's shooting uh, in the studios day in day out i think uh, having that slr grip is is maybe better for them um the r is more flexible right there's things like the optional battery grip so that you can be more comfortable shooting in a vertical uh orientation uh, or portrait orientation that grip also adds an additional battery which which helps if you're again shooting in the studios uh um, and, and you don't want to um, constantly replace batteries if you need to. Um, you also have the ability to add an EVF tilt adapter. So that's something that the, that the R doesn't offer. Um, and, uh, you know, again, shooting in studios, using the EVF uh, and having it tilt all the way up 90 degrees, sort of, sort of like uh, some of the other, you know, medium format cameras of the days where you're looking down. I think uh, that's quite useful. Uh, but it's also very useful for shooting in portrait orientation and having it, the EVF tilted up and down as well. So, again, in terms of ergonomics and handling, I think the S is uh, better than the R for that. Uh, if you're doing a lot of tethering as well, and, you know, GFX users tend to tether, especially if they're shooting in the studios, uh, you got all your slots, like the battery slot and the card slot on the side. So, you know, if you have it on a tripod, you don't have to remove... Uh, to get access to the batteries or to replace the um, the memory card. Everything is on one side of the camera, which is nice. And all the cables are connected on one side. So, again, you can obviously tether and power the, the, the GFX 50R as well, but all those ports are on the bottom uh, of the camera. Would you say the 50R is more for the casual shooter? 
I think the 50 are, uh, you know, could be for both. And I think, you know, from from me speaking with a lot of interested uh, GFX uh, uh, customers, um, they were considering the uh, the 50R because they felt like, you know, they were going to shoot in the studio sometimes, but because they're spending this amount of money, they want the flexibility to also go out with it and shoot on a more personal level, right? And so, you know, people consider the R and some of the trade-offs of the handling for that specifically. Uh, also, the R is less expensive as well, which is, you know, uh, very enticing if you're wanting to step into sort of, you know, shooting medium format, right? Yeah, and it also, I mean, if you look at the, at the 100 uh, megapixel one that is coming out, I think this shares the same form factor with the 50S, and that also gives a little bit the direction for that form factor. So whoever needs uh, multiple connections or integrated into a setup is probably better at home with uh, the 50S. Uh, yes, absolutely. I mean, there's other things as well, like the EVF has a much higher magnification, so you, you got a much larger viewing angle uh, when you use the EVF. At uh, the back of the, t the LCD screen also tilts three ways, where, um, you know, which is great for shooting portraits uh, in a portrait orientation, but, uh, you know, the, the, the 50R doesn't only, only has a two-way tilt. Um, and some people like having that sub-monitor on top. It's kind of a cool feature. Both the X-H1 has that and as well as the 50S. And you can see all your settings uh, on the top, uh, especially useful if you're, you know, not wanting to use the dials, right? And and, and you want to use the, the, the front and rear command dials to adjust shutter speeds and aperture. Uh, then, you know, that little... Um, sub monitor on top is quite useful it also displays you know other information uh which is which is great and it takes very little battery so there's some really pluses to the uh, the 50s uh you know if if this is a sort of a workhorse of a camera um and i just wanted to comment on the gfx 100 i uh, of course uh you know this is an upcoming camera that we announced uh development of uh down in photokina um i've had, actually had a chance to kind of hold this camera and you know it does feel different than the 50s it is actually much smaller feeling um because the grip is all integrated into the camera itself it's no longer sort of a you know a body and grip option it's all kind of integrated it actually feels quite nice and definitely much slimmer than the uh um the 50s and personally looks a lot better as well um so that's kind of um an interesting camera and uh, you know I'm, I'm excited uh, for when this camera launches as well when is the launch uh, more or less gonna happen the GFX 100 is definitely gonna be launching this year sometime uh, I don't have any further confirmation of, of timing of the camera but uh, uh, for sure in 2019 uh, we'll start to uh, get our hands on uh, this you know maybe revolutionary camera system right Looking forward to that. It puts me even more into a dilemma because I've been shooting the 50S uh, on the street and I love the look of the images. But then the R is great because it gives more discretion on the street. So now adding the 100 makes my dilemma even bigger, but it's a good one. So, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, honestly, having in-body image stabilization on a medium format camera, that's really intriguing because, yes. you know, now you're taking all these legacy lenses because we obviously found that a lot of people who bought GFX cameras 
adapt, you know, older lenses to this, and uh, you know, having the abilities to to be to have an image stabilized is going to be uh, very uh, interesting. So I'm excited to see this camera myself. Same here. Let's move on with our third category, the lens core. Today we're talking about the XF 80 millimeter macro lens. Take it away, Billy. The reason I'm I'm bringing this lens up is because it's you know springs around the corner uh at least uh, in in canada you know uh the cold is slowly going away although it's still still cold outside where i live um and so it might be a good opportunity to talk about you know the fujifilm lens lineup because we have such a great amount of lenses uh dedicated lenses for the system i think the X xf 80 mil is, is an amazing uh little lens you know uh in the sense that you know it's our you know, first one-to-one -one macro lens. It has uh, some incredible image stabilization. In fact, you know, some of the videos that we film for the Fuji guys, uh, when when we're very lazy uh, and and not wanting to use a gimbal, say on the XT3, we actually use the 80 mil lens to film because it has such wonderful stabilization, and and we can just you know handhold the uh, the camera and get a very steady shot uh, when, when we're doing videos with it. So I, I, and this is kind of the reason when I'm bringing it up. It's a great macro lens for, you know, obviously shooting things like flowers and insects. But, you know, one of the things that people don't think about is that, you know, this is also great for shooting portraits. You know, this focal length is a, is a good length that creates, uh, you know, some some great compression in in the, in the background and and really can help you isolate the subject and you know honestly it has a very pleasing bouquet uh, you know when you use this so it's it's my kind of go to when someone asks me do I pick the 90 mil or do I pick the uh, 80 mil well I like versatility and when and when you spend money on a lens uh, you know you you want to get the most value from it and I feel like the 80 mil is that that lens that can do a couple of things a little bit better, plus has, you know, optical image stabilization. I'll definitely look at it because I used to love the 60 millimeter 2.4. I think we talked about it in another episode, but I didn't use it anymore on the street because of the, uh, the, the extending barrel when you focused. So maybe this is a good option. Always love that look. I don't know what it is about the macro lenses that they give you this kind of look. Is, is that related to the macro functionality or is it just lens design? Well, I think it's lens design, and I think uh, on top of that, you know, having you know close focus uh, is is going to make things very interesting. And also, I guess with macro lens designs, you know, you have this very very pleasing, you know, bouquet, right? It's like this dreamy look that that just makes your picture stand out a lot more. You know, this lens is kind of. Uh, technologically advanced i mean there's quite a lot of unique things that are that are found on this lens that it's not found uh, on on some of the other lenses that we offer um there's actually you know two autofocus um um lens groups that actually move uh in order to uh to get the right focus and you know fujifilm actually had to develop this unique you know, ball slide system, basically these rails with ceramic balls inside. And, you know, these two, you know, autofocus lens group move in conjunction together. And, and what that does is it, it prevents the, uh, the one lens group from, you know, not being tilted, you know, and keeping it more accurate and getting you the best, 
you know, and sharpest image possible. And I think, you know, it's quite a challenge, uh, you know, for the lens designers to do something like that. So I, I think, you know, it, it's quite it's quite neat. Uh, in addition to that, you know, this lens is going to be used a lot in, you know, areas where you are very close sometimes, right? And and sometimes you're dealing with, with, with moisture and with dirt. And so, you know, there, there's this fluorine coating right on front of the lens so that, uh, you know, water and dirt just kind of repel right off the front. In fact, I think you can get like a Sharpie marker and, and write on it and just it'll, it'll rub right off because of that uh, fluorine coating. Wow, that's interesting. Is that going to come to other lenses as well in the Fujifilm lineup? I think some of the lens, uh, some of our higher end lenses do have a fluorine coating uh, on it. Um, but uh, for sure, the XF 80 millimeter lens, because of the usage type of this lens, it does have that unique coating. Um, what I also like is that it's kind of like a two in one, right? You got this macro lens that does one-to-one -one macro, but you also got this lens that can do great portraits. It does have optical, optical image stabilization. And then, you know, if you own or you're planning to buy a teleconverter, it works with both the 1.4 and the two-time teleconverter. So you effectively bring the, uh, the focal equivalent lens to um, about 170 millimeters uh, in terms of 35 millimeter uh, field of view, uh, f4. And uh, with the two-time converter, you bring it to around 245 millimeters, uh, f5.6. So, you know, you, 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 you kind of maximize the usage of this lens by, by it working with, uh, you know, the teleconverters. And that's kind of why, you know, this lens is, is something to look at if you're, you're interested in macro and if you're interested in, in doing portraits. Moving on to the tip corner. Billy is going to tell us all about how to format an SD card efficiently on a Fujifilm camera. But I have a question first, Billy. I've been told that I should format my SD cards always on my computer and not in my camera to minimize the risk of it being corrupted. Is that true? Uh, I've always been recommending customers to format their card using the camera because it's the best way where, you know, on a computer potentially and especially a Mac, there could be files that are written back onto the card causing kind of card error. So I, I generally always format my memory cards that I use uh, through the camera. And, and I find that uh, the format works the best that way. Um, and I've never had any card errors uh, when I've done it that way. What's best practice when it comes to SD cards? Just out of pure personal curiosity, should I format my card every time I offload my images and go out again? Or is that something I, I can I just delete them and, and move on? Or how do I handle that? Personally, for what I do, I always format my cards. So I, I take a picture. Uh, at the end of the day, I'm offloading those images onto my computer. I'm uploading it to my, uh, my I guess, cloud-based storage. I'm also backing up on my hard drive. So I have three different locations, at least, where I have my image. And once I can confirm that all three locations have my images, I then actually go and format the card. Um, I just like that when I go out, I feel like it's fresh and that no files are accidentally copied to the card in some way. Uh, when I when I download my images, because when I when I do download images, I don't connect the USB cable to the to the camera. I I have uh, still luckily a, a MacBook that still has a, a SD card slot, and I use that to download my images. Um, and so sometimes I'm always worried that 
you know, my Mac is copying additional files back with the sort of, uh, you know, archival bits that causes issues. So um, I always format my, my card before I use it. I do too, and I'm happy to hear that that is the right way to go. Now let's go back to the original question. How do I format an SD card on a Fujifilm camera as quickly as possible? Yeah, I think, um, you know, this tip uh, works pretty much with all the Fujifilm cameras. Um, so when you have the camera powered on and it's basically, you know, ready to take pictures, um, you hold down the uh, delete button for a few seconds. So you would count, you know, 1, 1,000, 2, 1,000, and then you would push in the uh, rear command dial and automatically the uh, format screen will come up. Um, if you have a single slot card, uh, camera, then it's just going to be like format OK, and then you would just choose OK and you can format the card. If you have a dual slot uh, uh, card camera like an X-T3, uh, then you, of course, come up with the option to, to format slot 1 or slot 2. So again, hold down the delete button for a couple of seconds, just saying the same things, 1-1000, 2-1000, and then pushing the rear command dial inwards will bring up that quick format screen. Which is very useful because if you have to dig into the menu, I think it's hidden in like a third level sub-menu to format the card. And when you format it and you have two cards, you have to go back and do it again. So that's actually really useful to kind of move on fast in this situation. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, again, you know, the wrench icon, user settings, format, and then you can do it. So there's three steps and you can kind of bypass that all. I mean, we obviously don't want people to quickly format the cards because, you know, it's really difficult to recover. In fact, I think when you format your card on our cameras, um, I've tried with recovery systems uh, software and none of them can find the images once you format. So you want to be very, very uh, careful with that. But yeah, that's a great trick uh, to quickly format your cards. Um, and again, the tip is to say 1-1000 to 1000. If you go 1-2, it's too short and uh, uh, it won't do anything. Yeah, hold that button down for a long enough time. Uh, did you ever accidentally erase an SD card, Billy? Uh, unfortunately, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yes, I've, I've lost images and, uh, you know, cause I thought I, I have multiple cards sometimes and sometimes, you know, with kids and family, you're, you're running around switching between cards and, you know, I was hundred percent sure that, you know, I downloaded these images uh, to the computer and I formatted the card because I had an event and I wanted the card to be clear and, and clean and ready to go. And as you know, it, I did not download those images. Uh, luckily, there were just, you know, I would say 30 images, but that's 30 images, you know, of my kids or something that I'll never get back. I haven't told my wife uh, that I've lost those images. So <laughs> it's I, I mean, I, I never did, I never formatted one by accident, but I once twice lost uh, a set of cards and it's it's a painful experience. I still remember the images that have been on that card. So be careful. Well, you know what, I, I know we're running some time here, but, you know, I like to tell a personal story that I had. Um, I was uh, flying to New York. Uh, we had, you know, a, a special meeting uh, in New York. Uh, and it was actually about GFX. And this, is, this was, uh, you know, uh, during the time of the development of the GFX 50, uh, 50S. And uh, I had the X, um, X10 uh, back then. Um, and you know, that was a one inch, sorry, that was a two thirds inch sensor. 
Uh, it was a great little cam to walk around because it had an f2.8 lens. Uh, anyways, I had a bunch of pictures that I've taken um, with my kids, uh, you know, during pumpkin Halloween season there. And uh, then I had to go to New York. Um, and, you know, I lost that camera. Um, and and I lost this in, you know, uh, the airport at uh, in New York, in LaGuardia. And... Uh, you know what? I two years later I had a meeting and uh, in New York again, and for some reason the airport called me <laughs> out of the blue, and and some guy said, "Hey, we're clearing out this storage area that we have in our lost and found, and um, you know this camera might be yours because you know your laptop's here and your business card is here." <laughs> and the funny thing was. Uh, you know, after I got that call, you know, I actually had a meeting in New York a week later. And so I got to the airport and behold it, you know, I, I, I went and they had my laptop bag, but I also had my camera. And, you know, I was so happy because, you know, the images on my camera was, was you know, what was important. And I, and I got those images back. So, um, you know, at the end of the story, basically, uh, the guy said, you, you should go buy a lottery ticket. <laughs> yeah, I agree with that. I mean, that's super lucky. I, I can tell you two short stories, uh, not to use too much time, but one camera got stolen out of my bag in, in uh, Nice, France at the airport. And I still to this day uh, admire the guy who did it because they did it so smartly. I, I noticed nothing and I'm very careful. I'm an experienced traveler. Never saw that camera again, uh, still remember those images. And the second time uh, it was stolen from me in a train and I got it back a year later. Strangely, the SD cards were still in there, but somebody erased half of the images and not the other half. So I, I kind of <laughs> got half my images back. But, you know, always be careful. I always say, you know, you can keep the camera. Just give me my SD cards and I'm, I'm happy. <laughs> so the lesson learned here is always back up your images uh, and never assume that you've actually saved those images somewhere. Correct. We might pick up the, the, the subject of, of backup in, in a future episode, but uh, we will see. Let's move on to category number five, accessories. We're going to talk about printers, specifically Instax printers and how to share images using them. Yeah, the reason I brought this up is that, you know, most of the Fujifilm cameras uh, do have Wi-Fi and they do directly connect to this uh, printer. We have, you know, a couple of versions, uh, the SP3 and the SP2. Uh, the SP3 supports uh, the square prints and the SP2 uh, supports basically the mini Instax film. And, you know, honestly, I don't, I don't see people use this enough. And the thing is, the features... Uh, on the Instax share, it's so good. Like I, one of the things I I do a lot is when I take some photos, uh, that I do print some and I give some, give these to people on the spot. And then, you know, the fact that that you know these Instax share printers are portable, run off battery, it makes for a perfect travel companion. And you know, I always say, you know, we have a lot of street photographers that are very interested in the Fujifilm cameras. And, you know, I think, you know, I see too much of people taking, but not giving. And I, and I feel like, you know, if you're going to take a picture of somebody, you know, maybe somebody that you'll never see again, I think you should 
give them something. And I think, you know, having an in-stack SharePoint is that perfect gift where, you know, um, you, you take that picture and, and you can actually physically hand that to somebody and and have them, you know, cherish that moment that they, they would not see again. And I think, you know, maybe it's my non-selfish ways of, you know, taking pictures, but I, I feel like, you know, you if you are taking pictures of somebody, you know, give them something back. And I think the Instax SharePoint is a perfect uh, feature, uh, product to have when, you, when you're traveling. Um, it's very simple to connect to it. Um, again, you know, you set up the uh, SSID information uh, onto your cameras in the, um, the wireless settings. And once you do that, you're basically just turning on the printer. Uh, and then in doing playback, uh, you would choose uh, the options to print to the share printer. And from there, if it's a square print, you do have this framing that you can shift left and right that, that allows you to crop the images to the appropriate size. And it just sends the print and you got this instant print. So I think people don't print enough. And I think, uh, you know, this is definitely a great accessory uh, if you're in the Fuji system and you want to give back, you do a lot of street photography or like me, if you're, you know, a father of two and you have a lot of birthday parties i think it's an, an awesome opportunity to uh to hand something to someone and again just for someone to see a physical print it's always uh you know better than just looking on the back of the lcd screen fully agree and uh as a street photographer i see the added value of that in this kind of setting to give back which i think is a good philosophy and also in any other setting where you just want to share some images do you know how many prints i get from battery charge on an instax printer uh, the batteries last quite long um you know you're looking at around 200 prints right um before the batteries get low um so the sp3 uses an mp uh I think uh, MP50 battery, so it uh, lasts quite a long time, and uh, it is rechargeable. It's USB chargeable, and so at the end of the day, it shouldn't be a concern. If you're traveling, you're not going to be making 200 prints. You'd be making maybe 10 prints, right? I, I will definitely look into that. I think that's 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 a cool gadget to make people happy in the process of of photographing them. Yeah, and I think the you know if I had to pick between which printer I would like. To be honest with you, uh, the square prints are the best because, you know, I do feel like the mini uh, film is a little bit small for me. And I think the squares is a, it's a perfect size uh, and, and shape as well. Great. So this sums up today's show. If you have any questions to me, to Billy, please do not hesitate. Drop us an email at jens at fujilove.com. That's J-E-N-S at fujilove.com we are more than happy to answer your questions and to talk about subjects that you care about billy another show thank you so much we highly appreciate your expertise and your presence and uh, we're looking forward to the next one great thanks for having me thanks billy thank you for checking in and listening to the fujilove.com podcast check out fujilove.com where we live and breathe all things fujifilm and photography with fujifilm cameras